Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another show. Cody, how you doing today? I'm I'm doing well today. I feel, you know, I'm in touch with my younger self because it's homecoming week at my school and it was dressed as a younger younger version of yourself, so I got to whip out my my Jordan shorts that went below the knee. It's been a while since I've worn below the knee shorts. I got a Michael Flowers jersey from when he played with the Wisconsin Badgers in the in the mid two thousands on. So I feel I, I feel I feel younger, Ben. I feel a good sixteen years younger right now. This is exciting. This is very exciting. I mean it's a good segue as well because sixteen years ago was two thousand and seven and I feel like I have spent a good amount of the summer watching basketball from the 2000s for the Offensive Legends series that we're running on YouTube. And of course, the latest episode was on Dirk Nowitzki. Uh, and, you know, I always have to cut stuff for time. You know what I mean? It's very, it's very frustrating. Have we talked about this before? I mean, I think that's a that's a tough thing in general. Like when you create something, there's so much information you want to put out there. But, you know, there's a thing called editing. And at a certain point, you can't just give somebody like a three hour product. So, yeah, a lot ends up on the cutting room floor. I get that. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the big sections, I don't know if we'll we'll do an extra on it or um, something, but there was a section that I ended up cutting out on. A few of these games I found in the middle of the 2000s, your, your Michael Flowers heyday years, where Dirk was totally dictating the matchups of the game to like start the game. The other coach would go, now, wait a second. We can't have Tim Duncan guarding you. Okay, so we're going to have Bruce Bowen guarding you. We think that's more advantageous. And that does these really weird things where Tim Duncan would then guard like when he was with the Mavs, uh, when he was with the Mavs, Dirk was always with the Mavs. Um, it was back in the, the Steve Nash days when he was with the Mavs is what I meant to say. And Dirk would guard Raja Bell, not Dirk. I'm ruining this story. Tim Duncan <laughs> would guard Raja Bell and Bruce Bowen would guard Dirk. And you got these really weird things. So Jeff Van Gundy did this with the Rockets in 2005 for a couple games to start their series, I think, where they had Ryan Bowen guarding Dirk, and then they didn't know what to do with Yao. It just got really weird. I can't remember if they were playing Dirk at center or if because Rafe LaFrance was a stretch big man, they wanted to put Yao on like a worse shooter. So they'd put Yao on like, uh, who, who did Yao end up on? Adrian Griffin or Josh Howard? I think Josh Howard, who is a, hmm. maybe like considered a weaker shooter than Rafe LaFrance. It just got really weird. Um, now that I'm saying this, I don't even know if Rafe LaFrance was on that team. But the whole, the whole concept, as I butcher... This story, this has been a great start to today's show, Cody. Um, the whole concept was like Dirk Nowitzki and so many of these players in this series, and we, we'll, we'll talk about more maybe in a second, have these things that aren't measured in the box score. They're not measured in traditional stats. They're not even things we typically think about when we start describing great players. I mean, there's so many ways to talk about great players as we spend four hours <laughs> pontificating on in our Who Could Be the Goat series. But you'll hear people analyzing how they play on the court, their stats, their accolades. If you look at skill sets, people will say, this guy's a great shooter, he's a great ball handler. But there's all these like in-between things that stats and some of these concepts have blind spots to. And so with Dirk, I thought you had two huge ones. One of them was his spacing, especially in that era, being a big man who could pull people away from the basket. It's far more common now, but I think we feel the sort of antithetical of that more. We feel like the moments when you don't have spacing 
on the court, the inverse. Oh, we have two big men who can't shoot, and look at what the defense is able to do when they don't have to worry about these guys. Back then, that was the norm, and Dirk was the outlier who's like pulling people out to the perimeter. We talked a little bit about this with, with Kevin Garnett a couple episodes ago, and no one just really noticed like how helpful that is when you soften up the lane, when you give more people space to drive into and cut into, and you aren't parked on the block. The second thing with Davitsky, and this is fairly unique to him, I'd say, is his pick and pop gravity. And just like how that started to mess with the way people wanted to defend pick and roll, especially in that era, the coverages they had for pick and roll. So often the big men would come out and hedge or show themselves in front of the ball handler and recover. And then like the second they did that, they're like, oh my God, I've lost, I've lost connection with Dirk. As Rick Carlisle said, you need to like hug him. Um, And that's not something that's ever really going to show up in a box score. And it's not something that you think of as a player having like a specific skill set that adds value. But I think those things added a ton of value that we just don't think about. And then there's smaller things and like this dictating the matchup stuff. Um, That's another one. And, And I think only star offensive players that really cause you to start to change your coverages and then change your lineups as a result of that. Oh, I want to put this guy on Larry Bird. We've talked about this in 1981 with the 1981 NBA Finals. Have we done our 19... Have we done Finals uh, MVPs before 2000? Have we done that? Have we ever no, gone we back? haven't gone through the, the Conference Finals yet. I know we were, we were talking about doing it at some point, but I think that's on the platter at some point. Okay, at some point we'll have to get there. Did we do, did we do NBA Finals? I think I did redoing the NBA Finals MVPs back to a certain point. And then last summer we did conference finals MVPs. So we've never gone this far back, but I've certainly alluded to the 1981 NBA finals where Cedric Maxwell wins the most valuable player award. He has a really nice series, but the whole thing happens because Houston's like, we have to put our best defender on Larry Bird and we have to shift the coverage on Larry Bird. And then we'll take whatever ramifications we have to deal with downstream from that. So in the case of these Dirk series I was watching, it's like, Tim Duncan, you're an amazing defender. In 2003, you're still, you know, it's before injuries and age and all that. You're still pretty darn mobile. Go guard a wing who can't shoot and just figure it out. Just figure it out. Everyone else figure it out because we have to focus on Dirk. In 1981, we have to focus on Larry Bird. So whoever is on Maxwell, like you figure it out. If you're a slower defender, it's fine because we need our best defensive weapon on Maxwell. I think in recent times in some of these playoff series, we've seen lineups even get changed because of this, where you like have a great player on the floor. You can't defend the setup and defensively you're like, okay, well, we can't play that big anymore. He's got to come out of the game. We need, we need to have a situation where if they're going to force us to switch pick and roll, we need to be able to have like a team that can handle whatever they're going to throw at us. So I think there's a ton of things, and it's a big takeaway for me from this summer, that we just have like blind spots to when we talk about basketball, either from a statistical standpoint or even from a skill set standpoint. Because for the first like 60 or 70 years of the sport, who would have gone... You know what's a huge skill, Cody? Gravity. Having a gravitational effect on the court, that's a huge skill. It's something that's a byproduct of other skills and how you play the game, but we don't always have the right sort of language or concept to even notice it as you watch these great players. And it usually jumps out with great players, and I think it's been a theme uh, for me this summer. 
before we really dive into some of the like the granular details of some of these stats we might talk about here, something that stood out to me going to your your Dirk video. R- really enjoyed the video. Honestly, I think it made me appreciate Dirk more because I think you know I haven't gone back and revisited Dirk too intensely, and my uh, conception of him was a lot of you know him getting the ball at the top of the key iso and then goes into that fadeaway and i'm like oh weird i didn't actually imagine him having as much gravity or or uh, latent value as you point out and you know i really appreciated seeing that but um i think the main part about it that like blew my mind you were just talking about with that spurs there's like that one spurs game but they just throw everyone on, on him like one-on-one matchups bowen duncan then oh let's try some double teams let's try this setup just the amount of changes they had to make in a single game was just, man, this guy was just unstoppable offensively. But then it made me ask a question, Ben, because now that you've been really uh, watching a lot of these games, you might be able to answer it better at the moment. Why do you think that Dirk and Nash just didn't work out as well as as they should have now that we see that Dirk has this much gravity and we talked about Nash being as brilliant as he is? Why weren't they just complete world beaters on offense when they were together? Yeah, it, it's a great question. It's one of those things where I have used the example of if you run your career backwards and you took these guys that had won three straight MVPs and you put them together, the pers- the perception of what was happening would be totally different. When you ran it forward, um, they were just two foreign dudes who, in the case of Nash, was a late bloomer. And in the case of Dirk, was seen as a kind of soft European foreigner. I actually had to cut all the historical context in the video about how people thought he was a choker and how Europeans were soft and it just never ended up fitting. But if you're a younger listener and you you see the Nowitzki video and you kind of get a greater appreciation, as you said, Cody, for some of the depths of his game away from the ball and some of the, the court warping effects he had that helped out his teammates. The other thing sitting there is that he was criticized pretty heavily in the middle of his career, starting in like the mid 2000s. And it hit this crescendo, these these three years in a row where they beat the Rockets in 2005. But there were a couple games where like Ryan Bowen, quote unquote, shut down Nowitzki. Uh, By the way, it helps to have Jeff Van Gundy and Yao Ming and, you know, like a ton (laughs) of great defenders behind you to shut down perimeter players. We've talked about that before. 2006, they lose in the finals and I think 2006 Dirk was phenomenal like for me that was really the year I always was pretty high on his offensive game in general but that was really the year where I was like oh okay he's like really one of the top players in the league and then they get to the finals and they're up to nothing they're up 13 points in the fourth quarter in game three they end up losing the next four games it's one of those things where they lose all three close games in the series by a combined six points um they, yeah, they were they were right there. They actually outscored Miami with Dirk on the court, as I mentioned in the video. And the taste of like losing that lead and all the controversy around the officiating that it felt like even though he had a great year, it felt like that was a negative. And then in 2007, there's the bounce back, the quote unquote bounce back of like, oh, my God, they won 67 games. We're going to give Dirk the MVP. And then they lose in the first round to the Warriors and he genuinely does struggle a little bit with the Warrior. I should say a lot relative to his standards in that series. And some of it was, and this is going to answer your question now, some of it was Don Nelson sort of understanding how to take him out of his sweet spots at that time. And then later on in the decade, he would develop a, a little bit 
of a more robust game where it's harder to do that. But like in that series, they just are go, they just go, okay, we're just going to play a ton of switchy wings, right? Steven Jackson, Matt Barnes, like these guys are going to be all over you and then they're going to front you and they're going to front you and we're going to bring a help defender just like they do in modern times. We're going to bring a help defender from the weak side. So we're going to deter your teammates from making that pass to you in the high post or on the wing. And now I, I rewatched game six recently for the video. Um, he just became almost passive because he couldn't get the ball. It was just frustrating. He could never get the ball in his spots. And then someone else on the Mavs, you know, you get all of a sudden Josh Howard or Jerry Stackhouse, whoever's on that team is running to play. And that just goes on and on and on. So back to your question about him and Nash. Um, one, I don't think they were as good as they would be. So Dirk, even though Dirk was steady as a metronome, I do think there are things about his game, some of his passing reads, and then the post-up and the strength, and even some of his decision-making that I get into later in the video. I think that improved in the second half of the decade and later in the decade. Nash has a similar thing where Nash is just clearly better. We can talk about all the possible reasons with D'Antoni and spacing and coaching changes and, excuse me, rule changes at the time with the, with the hand-checking rules and freedom of movement. But if you look at the way he was built physically... And Mark Stein, uh, who, who covered the Mavs quite a bit, he talked about this at one point, I think, on, uh, I think on a Bill Simmons podcast. He talked about how Nash thought he had to be sturdier to take a beating because at the end of the year, he would wear down physically. He would get really tired and he's a small guard. And in the early 2000s, as we've talked about so many times, it was a big league. It was a big, slow, bruising league where you could do stuff like play Dirk Nowitzki at small forward. So you'd have these lineups with like Sean Bradley at seven foot six and another big man at seven feet tall and then Dirk Nowitzki at small forward at seven feet tall. The, the Mavs had three seven footers in some of these lineups. So Nash wanted to be sturdier and say everything else about whatever other factors you want. But when you go watch the game tape from him in 2004 to him in 2005, his conditioning and his quickness and his movement are almost night and day. I don't want to totally say night and day, but th there's a huge change and he's just svelter. He's lighter and thinner and he went in the other direction. So instead of trying to pack on meat in a frame that's similar to like my size frame, he goes, we're going to get very slender and we're going to be a cyclist. We're going to be a marathon runner and we're going to push it down everyone's throat and we're going to use conditioning. So those are the two big reasons. But I think if I had to give another tactical reason, Cody, from watching them so much, they didn't know Don Nelson, he's got too many, too many tools he's playing around with. You know, Don Nelson is a mad scientist, but he didn't necessarily capture lightning in a bottle with Steve Nash and Dirk in their two-man game and say, run this all the time. So I actually think if we went back and we had synergy stats, I think their two-man game would have totally destroyed defenses. Like, I think the numbers would have been amazing. I'm sure the Mavs were running some internal analytics where they knew it was really good. But 2002, 2003, those early days, uh, let's give Nick Van Exel the ball. Let's give Antoine Walker the ball. Let's give Jerry Stackhouse the ball. And so it's like you had a great offense, but why wasn't it quite as unbelievably extraordinary as we think it should be. I think because they literally did not lean into it on every possession like a team would today. I think any team in the last few years, if they had something that dominant, would either spam it in the fourth quarter of games or set up the offensive structure throughout the course of the game to be able to dominate with those two players. Minus shot number 
Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Did, did Nelson seem like he knew what he had in that case? Like when, when the chips were down with the Mavericks games we were watching and they really need to get a bucket. It was down the last five minutes or whatever else. Did he seem to start spamming this kind of thing? Or did he never really show that like he knew the the cards he was holding in his hand? Well, his son, Donnie Nelson, loved Nash and Dirk, I think, from, from the get-go. So it wasn't like they didn't view these players as players that they were high on and that they loved. They, they wanted Nash to stay. Uh, obviously, there's health reasons and all these other reasons why they didn't re-sign him, his age and things like that. But... I wouldn't say they spammed that two-man game. I'm not even sure they took that two-man game and extracted all the value out of it that they could have. What I will say is there's a lot of times down the stretch of games where they throw it into Dirk and send Nash into the corner. Um, And Nick Van Exel loved big shots. And frankly, Nick Van Exel made a ton of big shots in his entire NBA career going back to the 90s. And so he wants the ball and he's going to make a play. And then there are a couple games here and there where like, Nash is really hot and working. I think 2003 against the Kings in the second round. He has a monster second half, fourth quarter, and overtime and a huge road win that they have in that series. And so it's like Nash is cooking. So you kind of see the the Phoenix Nash doing his thing. But there there wasn't really that sense of like the two of them are just getting the Hall of Fame historic offense that we know and think of today, putting it together and one one twenty offensive rating. Good night. Like no one can stop it. You didn't really have that. So there's. It seems like there's a few factors that are like immeasurable that kind of describes what's going on. You talk about the coaching thing, like the hidden aspect of like, oh, there are definitely some coaching strategies we could have employed maybe to maximize. I know you talked about like Steve Nash was put in the corner a couple times, and I know you sent me a couple clips because I was interested. I'm like, are they using Steve Nash like a proto Stephen Curry? Is he running off like pin downs and sprinting all over the place? You're like, yeah, I guess sometimes, but like not all the time, not primarily in the way that that Curry was used. So there are some coaching things we talk about. There's the fact that Nash went in the uh, 2013 Duncan route, where it's like, all right, I need to lose some weight. I need to get in a lot better shape and I need to be running around. It's another thing that's a little bit immeasurable. And the fact that both of them, like Dirk, like you said, gets stronger. He almost goes the other way. His base gets stronger where he can punish guys in the post and whatever else. So, you know, those are all things to try and, you know, circle it back into a into a direction we want to go here. Those are all kind of immeasurable things that's like, all right, when we're looking at these guys, it's tough to like really identify any of these from any stats we look for. And, you know, the... I don't know. You have to go back to the film. You have to go back to the context. We have to see where they end up. And then when you take the whole body of their work, go back and be like, oh, this is how they were able to develop. This is how they were able to be used. I'll I'll say one thing more about Dirk, um, to your point. He never has, in the early days, like 
early part of the 2000s, he never has that signal that we talk about so much on this show where you look at what happens when like Nash goes to the bench. You look at what happened when Michael Finley goes to the bench and you almost expect, hey, this guy, I'm watching the film. His shot is there. His game is there. He's more athletic in terms of speed and fluidity and playing from the outside. He's a nightmare than he'll ever be later in his career. Where are the splits where these guys go to the bench and he averages like 30 points per 75 and they don't exist. And it's one of those things where, again, immeasurable. If you look at the statistical signal, it's not there. But I kept looking at the tape and to me, my takeaway was, well, Nelson never puts him in a situation where he has to do everything because he's got so many other ball handlers and guards out there. They went out and they got so much talent. And it wasn't always talent that like made them a super team, right? But the Mavs were looking for players who could score and pass and had skill. And sometimes that might not have, you know, sometimes that might have been bumpy, the Jerry Stackhouse experience or Antoine Walker, or Antoine Jameson. But when you have that many guys out there that had the ball, I'm just not sure there was ever really a moment where 2002 or 2003 Dirk could just be you you're almost forced necessity being the mother of invention to develop the offense around him and that's what happens later they they trade in these offensive pieces for defensive pieces Avery Johnson who he gives a lot of credit for pushing him to develop his post game more as a counter to the way teams were playing him Avery Johnson also was the one who said if we put you in the middle of the court you're going to be more comfortable with your skill set because then you can see a double team coming from either side. It's going to make it a real pain if we get shooters on either side of you. And that, of course, is the thing that we started this whole conversation with, where you're like, when I think of Dirk, I think of him setting up above the free throw line and cooking the dude he's going one-on-one with. And he did that, but he did all this other stuff that had a great effect on the game, especially with his off-ball skills. And yet, like... Some of these seasons, 23, 24 points a game, two and a half assists a game. That's it. That's the stat line, right? And not a, not a big offensive rebounder, not because he's not a good rebounder. I actually think his size and his rebounding adds a little value. Uh, but he's playing on the perimeter. So it's that Reggie Miller thing. We saw that. It reminded me a lot of like this taller, kind of more unique posty version of Reggie Miller. You got a player that averages three assists a game. His scoring numbers, especially in the regular season, don't always pop. But whatever he's got in terms of his skills and the way he plays, the playoff numbers will pop. In Dirk's case, in the second half of the decade, in Miller's case, for like the entire... I still don't even understand. I mean, you know, you make these graphs and you're like, you're like, Dirk is one of the best scorers ever. There goes his dot. Let me show the people the other three or four dots next to him. And you're like, why is Reggie Miller's dot higher than Dirk's dot? Um, and then Nash, doing Nash before that, I mean, Nash's first MVP season, Cody, averages 15 points a game, 15 and a half points a game and 11 assists. And so it's like the theme of a lot of these videos in the series is this idea that the box score only captures so much. We know that. But it almost goes deeper than that, right? Um, One of my favorite episodes I ever did, I think it was the third episode of this show, It's called The Tyranny of the Quantifiable. And it's about this phenomenon that other people have discussed where when you measure stuff and you count it and you, in our case, you put it in the back of a basketball card or you put it in a newspaper or whatever, that is the thing that starts to dominate the way you conceive of the sport 
and conceive of of success in the sport. And it quietly prunes out the other areas and creates these blind spots. And yet, you go through so many of these great offensive players in history. Michael Jordan's easy because Michael Jordan scored a lot. But he did do other stuff. His playmaking is just like a serious, serious thing. Um, but even then, there are seasons where Michael Jordan had the ball a lot. And back in the old days, you're like, wait, it's the 32 points and eight assists, eight assists a game. My man. All right. Getting it done. But now you look at some of these other players, whether it's Dirk, whether it's Nash, whether it's uh, Reggie Miller, even some things discussed in the Will Chamberlain video. Um, next up, we're going to do Mono Ginobili. I think a lot of people mm. have been asking about that. I think a lot of people know that's coming. I mean, you look at his raw stats, and again, they're not, they don't jump off the page as like a superstar, but there's all kinds of other stuff going on here. And to me, I think over the years, I've really come to appreciate how big the difference in value is between... We talked about this a couple episodes between one guy that averages like 25 points and four assists a game and another guy that averages 25 and four because of all this stuff. This this stuff, this metaphysical stuff that you're talking about, I think that's what I really want to try and try and grasp here because you've really hit the gamut of, of players so far in this series, right? None of these guys really play that similarly, right? What we've done, you've done Iverson, you started with Wilt, you have Dirk, Nash, Manu's coming up. Um, I don't know who else is on the docket, but uh, that's a lot of different styles. Do you feel like that there's like a, um, what's the term I'm trying to say? I want to say coalescing. I'm not, I don't know if that's quite what I'm trying to, to communicate here, but do you think that there's some kind of things, that stuff that they all have that they bring to the table that's providing some kind of latent value? Is there some kind of like secret juice to like the best offensive players that are out there that they do, that players that aren't the best offense players do, and especially something that might not show up in a traditional be- on the uh, back of the the basketball card box score? So you mean a common a common thread that runs between all of them? Yeah, exactly. Um, my instinct is no, and that's what's so cool because you can do it so many different ways. I think what you're getting at, though, and, and maybe what subconsciously I'm getting at in the series by looking at these different styles of players is if you're, uh, and we'll talk about some specifically now here in a second, but let's start with like decision making. If your decision making is great, um, if you check the box in some of these other areas of basketball that aren't just about how good are your box score stats? How good are your ball handling moves? Because like Dirk is interesting because he doesn't really dribble that much. Steve Nash dribbles a ton. So Steve Nash's value is like dribbling and passing. Dirk's relative weakness on offense is dribbling and passing. And yet both of them are having this massive value on the game in very, very different ways. Some of it with Dirk is a function of not having the ball, but then why does he demand it so much? Like, why does he demand so much attention when he doesn't have the ball? Why does he help his teammates so much? Some of it is by virtue of being seven feet tall and being a big man. Um, but the simple one is he shoots really well. So shooting, when we, when we talk about a tangible thing, I think shooting is still probably underrated as to how important it is to be a great shooter from Nash to Dirk to Reggie Miller to Steph Curry um, on and on and on and on. The effect that that has on people is greater than just the sum of putting your shots in the basket at X percentage. There, there is some additional effect 
taking place. But I also think, and I talked about this at the end of the Dirk video, um, he, he is really efficient away from the basketball with his decisions. And so Nash is really incredibly efficient in a sense with how much he has the ball carving and weaving and moving and, and every second that goes by in theory he's improving the offensive efficiency of the team because he's like, well, let me try to get by this guy. Let me get into the paint. Let me force this guy to collapse. And every time he does that, because he's so good at making a decision, he's opening up a window that is higher efficiency for his overall team in the system. I talk about this in Thinking Basketball, the book. So I think if there's common threads, it's in that space where like decision-making feel and the skill that fits with the team, the teammates next to them is just an amplifying force on every possession. And that's a, that's a subtly, but really importantly different thing than being Adrian Dantley and having like great scoring numbers. And also by the way, Adrian Dantley can cook anybody like great isolation skills, but the way you do it, isn't an amplifying force necessarily. So you don't, you, your stats may look better than other players, but your outcome of your offensive impact on the game isn't necessarily as great. I think this is good. I think landing on decision-making as the, the through line through all of these is great because decision-making itself doesn't necessarily look the same for all these guys. We even talked about like during the uh, Who Could Be the Goat series, we talked about like LeBron James, Magic Johnson, Steve Nash, Chris Paul. All of these guys are great decision-makers, right? But they're all very different kinds of decision-makers. Chris Paul and LeBron James being the pound the rock kind of person, pick you apart sort of way, whereas Magic Johnson and Steve Nash are like, I'm going to keep like driving this ball, just driving it into the paint until something comes loose, and then I'm going to take advantage of it. Even Dirk, I loved that part of the video where the decision-making you had is like, he's almost stampeding like every time he gets a pass. Like, there's the ball comes towards him, and he's immediately making the move. And not only does he make the move, but he's quick enough thinking then that whatever counter the defense throws at him, he's got it beat, right? Like, obviously, you can go back to the once it's going, the unstoppable one-footed fadeaway, but that's not option A. That's option, like, F. And it always takes me back to, uh, there's, a, there's a great article Honestly, I think the author was like named Duno, D-W-N-O or something like this. It was a Pounding the Rock article about Manu Ginobili, and it was like comparing him to the Borges, basically, to Borges. And uh, it's, man, let me let me think about this for a second. The point about Manu Ginobili the was that his, his spot, Ben, his spot was being chased off his spot. All right. Oh, yeah. So whatever oh, yeah. you threw at Manu yeah. Ginobili, the point was is he was going to get somewhere where he felt even more comfortable because it didn't matter. It was the infinite chase of trying to beat down Manu Ginobili. And to me, that's a main through line of all of these guys is no matter what you throw at them, the next thing that they're going to throw at you is actually going to be just as effective. So decision making and uh, just not being able to be chased off your spot. I mean, technically, the decision making occurs in basketball when you don't have the ball as well is that famous John Wooden quote about you know only one guy can have the ball and you're not going to have the ball for most of the game so how are you going to how are you going to impact how are you going to impact the game in those situations and it's like where you move to where you put your body I mean here's another one we've got screen assists now that had mm -hmm. kind of you know had their little moment where people were having fun with Rudy Gobert's screen assists but the reality is that is another subtle little 
feel IQ effective area of basketball, where if you understand how to set up the screen, if you understand the angles of the screens, if you understand how to flip the screen, if you understand how to read the coverage and slip the screen based on what's happening. We had a couple of those plays, I think, in the Steve Nash video where as, as a ball handler and a screener, you can read the coverage or hear the call of the coverage of the screen. And if one of the players in the coverage gets out of position, you have to know to slip it. So you have to know to slip it, and then the ball handler has to know to make that read and pass it early. Those are little things that kind of get picked up in the box score sometimes if you end up getting extra points and extra assists and stuff like that. But this just falls into this category we're talking about of like, decision-making and what you do with yourself and the ball on the floor is is such a big thing. Movement and cutting without the ball. Uh, I think this is another area where our stats traditionally have a blind spot. Like, how do you know from looking, not just at the box score, even if I gave you like play-by-play. If I gave you access, if I say go over to playbyplaystats.com, the greatest site in the history of the internet. If I say go over there and tell me before you watch basketball, if you're young enough, go back to the late 90s. Well, actually, it starts in 2000. So go back to 2001, 2003, early 2000s. Tell me which of these players were movement shooters and great cutters. And tell me which of them were spot-up shooters or isolationists or something like that. And maybe with some stats, you could try to start approximating it. But Cody, when you get to these areas, like sometimes the stats point in one direction for one player and the other direction for another player. Um, I mean, Dirk, another thing with Dirk, the sort of effectiveness of his decision-making at the top of the key without being a fancy dribbler, without being a high-level passer, basic pass, wait for the double team or get into my move ends up in a very, very low turnover player, not just for the individual, this is the important part, but for the team, because that is the central hub of the offense. And when Dirk goes to the bench, now you got to run different, you got to run totally different sets with players who might be more prone to turn it over. So I think the stat that I had to cut out there, I just ended up going with that graph where he improves most of his teammate shooting efficiency, but related to that is what he does to their turnover economy. And from 2005 to 2011 in the regular season, the Mavs were something like 2.8 turnovers worse per 100 possessions when Dirk Nowitzki went to the bench. And this is these are these little things that are just kind of like lost in the way we approach the sport analytically, like with stats and accolades and skill sets and things like what's the skill set? He's low turnover. Well, he doesn't dribble that well. He doesn't pass that well, but he's low turnover. All set for your flight. Yep. I've got everything I need. Eye mask, neck pillow, T-Mobile, headphones. Wait, T-Mobile? You bet. Free in-flight Wi-Fi, 15% off all Hilton brands. I never go anywhere without T-Mobile. Same goes from a water bottle, chewing gum, nail clippers, okay, passport. I'm gonna leave you to it. Find out how you can experience travel better at tmobile.com/travel. Qualifying plan required. Wi-Fi were available on select U.S. airlines. Deposit and Hilton Honors membership required for 15% discount. Terms and conditions apply. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. 
Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Now, I think I think I, we ran some numbers for some other guys, too. I think Steve Nash and LeBron, at least a couple of guys we yep. looked at, have yep. similar kinds of impacts. Uh, I'm, I'm looking at the box score right now, Ben. I'm thinking about them. And I, I got a heady question about them. Uh-oh. W- which of these stats, Ben... Which of these thing? Which of these do you think produces the most tantalizing siren song? Which one of these produces some kind of signal that, if you follow it too closely, it might lead you down a path that you don't quite want to be in? Which is like almost the one that can be used to to tell the biggest lie, I guess. Yes. Yes. Well, what's the what's the question? Are you going to give me some? Options? Which one is it? Which one of the the key box score ones do you think is the, the has the greatest siren song? Oh, I can go to anything in the box score. Well, I'm, I'm looking at like traditional box score stuff where we don't have to go like into the derivatives of PBP type stuff right now. Oh, Just oh, traditional okay. box yeah. score. Okay. Well, to be fair, the easy answer was points, but I think as a community we rectified that. Okay. Um, thank goodness, right? Yeah. There are still some people who don't think efficiency and points are related and all this stuff, but like for the most part over the last five to 10 years, it's been pretty accepted that we shouldn't just look at the fact that you're like a 25 or 30 point game score, because I don't think coaches will even let you be a 30 point game score anymore for the most part, if you're really, really inefficient with your actions, they'll probably just take the ball out of your hands. We have too many analytical tools and pace and space is too effective as an offensive concept and the entire structure of how they have the court laid out geometrically. It's too effective to let guys just play the way they used to, where it's like, okay, yeah, you're a 25 point per game score, but it doesn't really lead to very good offense, and you yourself aren't even very good at putting it in the hoop. So that's the easy one, but that's a cop out, right? Because you're asking about today. Yeah, yeah. What's something else besides points that you would pick? Uh, let's see. We have rebounds. We did an entire episode on rebounds. I think rebounds used to have more value, so historically they still have some value. Uh, I've done so much work on assists. I think you could argue that you can tease out assists and the value of assists with other factors from the box score to a certain degree. You can kind of figure out who's getting more Rondo assists and who's getting more Michael Jordan assists and things of this nature. So uh, what else do we have? We have steals, blocks, Fouls, rebounds, and turnovers, right? Yeah. Uh, Steals are a tough one. Mm. Steals are really tough. Because I think there's this concept that like a defender that gets a lot of steals is making the most high-value play humanly possible. And that there's no negative sort of downside to getting steals. But every time you get a steal, it's worth like... I think didn't 538 or someone have a study that steals were worth like nine points per game or just something, something where you're like, can we go back and check our work? Yeah, that was, uh, that was an old uh, Benjamin Morris article. I yeah. think it was like the irreplaceability of steals or something like yeah, that. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's, it's a little silly because when do steals happen? Like the greatest steal you could get is a pick six probably going the other way for, for an easy layup. And Thibel. Yeah, and more specific. <laughs> you're just you're just saying that because you wanted to say his name during this episode. It's been too many episodes since you said it's, his it's name. It's been too long. Yeah, but um, I think more specifically than just getting the turnover and then scoring on the other end, more specifically with a steal, Cody, you want to make a play that other people couldn't make. 
You want to make a play that other people couldn't make. This is such an important concept in basketball about replacing sort of average league actions. So what I mean by that is if you go look at the distribution of steals and how they're credited historically, you'll notice that most guards get about like 0.7 or 0.9 steals per game or something as a baseline. There are a few counterexamples, um, and I, I don't remember them off the top of my head, but what you actually realize if you start to look at the film that connects to the steal and the way it's credited is a lot of loose balls used to bounce around the middle of the court. So someone else would fumble the ball while they're dribbling against their defender or whatever, and the ball would spit out near the free throw line, and it's a steal for the guard. The guard gets credit for picking up the loose ball. Someone goes under the basket. They're driving. They get cut off. They're out of control. What do they do? They throw it back up to their teammate in the middle of the floor. Who's there? The guard. If they're near the basket, they might be more prone to shoot it at the basket. So they either miss or a big man gets a block. But the guard version of that is like, I was just out here standing in the middle of the floor like I was supposed to, and you just were out of control and you threw it to me. So those steals aren't super valuable if everyone in the league would have generated that steal just by standing there on defense. Really what we're saying is the other players on your team generated that steal. Bruce Bowen guarding the ball and Tim Duncan shading at the baseline and scaring the living bejesus out of that defender and him falling out. Like that's what generated the steal, not Tony Parker standing at the free throw line, right? So the replaceability is the thing there. And then the last thing was steals. And this connects to turnovers, which probably would be my other answer. Uh, although you could say the same thing with blocks, man. We got to talk about blocks mm -hmm. in a second. Mm -hmm. um, the last thing with steals and turnovers is if you get a steal at like 21 seconds on the shot clock, especially if you go the other way and get good offense and no one else in the league would do that, you've got amazing hands or you make an amazing anticipation of a pass or something, you just all of a sudden spiked that entire possession with value out of thin air. No one else in the world can do that. Cody, you get one of these steals with like two seconds left on the shot clock because someone else is trying something. Again, that steal is really a byproduct of everything else that happened in the first 22 seconds of the shot clock. And so the credit either needs to go to the other players on your team that made it hard to find a good shot in the first 22 seconds. Coaches love that, right? Stay at home, do your job, and now you're late clock and the thing's blown up. Or it needs to negative be, negatively be credited to the player who dribbled the ball out of the possession for 22 seconds and this doesn't happen as much anymore but man you go back and you watch these old games and you're like why have you dribbled 17 times before you set up the play and now you tried your initial action with eight seconds on the shot clock and it got stuffed so you're in desperation mode that's where these kinds of stats like steals and turnovers and things like this can really be confusing and cut in different directions. And I'll, I'll pass it back to you, but I know you have the same thing with blocks where rim deterrence and all this other stuff is the thing, but some guys get blocks because they chase, they chase shots out of position and they mess up the defense, and some guys get blocks because they're just making amazing plays that no one else would make. Uh, to add a little bit of context to your scoring comment from earlier, I just quickly looked at the top 20 scorers by points per 75 and the thinkbasketball.net for uh, Patreon subscribers. Uh, the top 20 scorers by points per 75, only two of them negative efficiency guys. John yeah. Morant and Trey Young, the only two guys. So everyone and else is positive efficiency. Great, great passers. Yeah. 
Yes, exactly. Yeah. So they're they're bringing in a lot of value offensively elsewhere. But yeah, the defense in general, like you just said, the the blocks portion of it. A block looks really good. A blocks like listen, Ben. Like a volleyball spike out of bounds is is just sexy. Like there's no way around it. Like it's just wonderful to watch somebody like go up with the layup, and then someone comes up with a get that weak stuff out of here. And obviously, not all blocks again are created equal, like some kind of uh, a big man that's just kind of like standing there and then gets up at the last second and and blocks it and maybe the ball wasn't even going to go in. It's maybe not super valuable, but then you have like one of these chase down blocks. You have a LeBron James one-on-one that's going to be two points and he gets back there and and blocks you. That's a super valuable, saves two points. It's kind of like getting the steal at the beginning of the possession. But, you know, like you were saying, doing a little bit of work with rim protection recently, uh, rim the two things... The two factors that go into protecting the paint that I don't think a lot of people think about a lot are are rim deterrence. Like how many fewer shots are teams getting at the rim when this big guy or when this person's in the game and how many free throw points are they scoring less, right? And I think this was a big thing about Jaron Jackson last year and some of the the evidence I was looking at recently kind of, it made me a little bit more skeptical because I was always like, ah, who cares if he's getting fouls? But the fouls he's... he's, uh, getting during the game is sending players to the line, giving them free points, giving them them points that they wouldn't otherwise be getting. And I think he's basically the only big man I've sampled where they get more opponent score more at the free throw line when he's on the court versus when he's off. So it's not just blocking shots, right? It's not just making them shoot worse at the rim. It's also about fewer shots at the rim, fewer attempts at the free throw line and blocks just it woefully, woefully undercounts those kinds of things. Yeah, I do wonder if it's some something that was a better proxy of this stuff in the 70s or 80s or 90s or something like that. Um, you know, maybe as we get more information, uh, we'll be able to answer the history of it. But certainly today, it feels like one of those things where, I mean, I, I guess Hassan Whiteside was at one point the ultimate example of mm-hmm. this maybe where he's getting a lot of blocks. Maybe Andre Drummond had this. Didn't someone vote Andre Drummond for like defensive player of the year and then they got a lot of scrutiny for did you remember this we okay we're gonna have to side note this for a second but i'm gonna go (laughs) off to the side for a moment i was i've had a recent fascination with andre drummond again and i was looking through my old i don't know why i've been going through my old tweet something about drew holiday's whole odyssey is has made me go back through the past things i've said i have an odd fascination with andre drummond where he makes these incredible defensive player of the year type plays. He strips Dwayne Wade multiple times as a rookie. He has a play a couple years ago with the Nets where he deters someone and recovers for a huge rim block. He does these incredible things. But overall, he's just not quite at that level. But I think he's really interesting defensively. That's all I want to say. I think okay. Andre Drummond is a really interesting defensive player. Okay. Either either way. Either way. Yeah. I think uh I think I think we've covered this ground. Blocks, turnovers, yeah, yeah all, all that all that good Let- stuff. Let me ask you something about defense then. So steals, I think, because I think with rim stuff, we talk a lot about uh, paint numbers, and I think some of the numbers about protecting the paint are better than a lot of the guard defense. Um, what, like, Where can we take stats right now, Ben, in a way to try and paint a clearer picture for perimeter defense? Because to me, that seems to be like the the gap right now. You can obviously look at deflections. You can look at, like you said, steals. You can look at bad pass steals or or things like that. But it just doesn't seem like there's a great way to encapsulate how good a perimeter player is while defending on the perimeter. How, how would you go about fixing it if you even have like a good answer for that right now? Well, it'd probably be something to do with containment. And I don't know how teams want to define that based on the coverages they run. But I mean, 
think about it. If you are a backline defender and you're a big man, even in pace and space, as you've talked about and done work on recently, like rotating and getting to the basket is still the high value real estate where you can very clearly point without the variance of shooting and things like that, luck of three pointers. You go, hey, when this guy's on the court, teams have a much harder time scoring near the basket. And when I turn on the film, I can see it because he rotates, he communicates, he sh- he blocks shots, he's, he deters them from shooting, he doesn't foul, right? Mm-hmm. The perimeter is a harder thing because it's like, what, 85 feet of real estate or something. It's this arcing three-point shot that's used these days. You've got the pick and roll game, which often starts it. So how are you containing the ball handler? Sometimes you have to worry about the screener. I mean, man... Anthony Davis, there was one game against the Raptors last year where OG Ananobi was like, I'm just not leaving Anthony Davis on any of these screens. I talk about it in the yep. uh, smartest plays of the year for the NBA recently, if you've, if you've seen that. It's like, you have to worry about the ball handler. You have to worry about the screener, depending on whether the screener has got the roll gravity of Anthony Davis or Giannis or the pop gravity of Dirk Nowitzki or something like that. Or if it's a guard and it's Steph Curry, what what is he going to do? Um And usually now NBA teams, the second that screening action happens, are shifting the other three players on the court. They're sliding a third defender over to help defend. So how do you accredit like success in that situation? It's got to be, to me, something to do with containing that action. But I it's not an obvious thing, especially when, you know, Traditional stats, forget about it. They have no chance. You'd have to use some kind of optical tracking, and I'm sure teams internally do this, and you can use some of the tools that are publicly available uh, to try to get an idea of, like, when this player's on the court, do teams have a lot of success in their pick-and-roll action? Do teams have a lot of success shooting threes? Do teams have a lot of success with, say, their perimeter guards and offensive engines having great numbers and having, you know, great success and then compare that to when the player's off the court. Something something like that would be my instinct. I feel like something I hear cited is some kind of second spectrum thing where it's like when so and so defends a pick and roll, this and this happens. And I think that's probably in line with something that would be helpful, like maybe in a deterrence kind of way like how many times like what what's the what's the delta what's the change in the amount of times yep. that this offensive player passes when being defended by so and so in the pick and roll so i think the sort of data would need to be like a lot more tracking stuff the which is like like as far as i'm concerned none of that is really publicly available right now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry only on bluenile.com make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab grown diamond bands all hand finished and graded for excellence or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings blue niles jewelry experts are available 24 7 to help from fit questions to style advice right now get up to 30 percent off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. you're also getting to another thing that i think is unmeasured uh that sometimes we have a blind spot to and that's coaching mm-hmm. so you can be a super skilled perimeter defender, both in terms of staying in front of your man relative to other players and in terms of navigating screens and maybe even the dance that takes place where you sense where the screen's coming from and you communicate with your big man and you like Marcus Smart when you watch him with the Celtics, just pointing and calling out plays and switching and scramming and you can do all that. But if you don't have a coach that sort of 
teaches the entire team system defensively, gets everyone to buy in defensively, gets a lot of effort defensively, maybe even puts the right lineups on the court to complement the way you defend the pick and roll, you might not look as great in those stats, even if we had those stats, right? And I think that concept applies maybe universally in basketball. It applies certainly on offense. You asked me about Steve Nash. Going and sending him into the corner was probably not the best idea for the early 2000s Mavs. I mean, Ginobili is a more interesting example of this because Ginobili for the first couple seasons, like Popovich wanted to rein him in. You know what I mean? He he just is kind of like this rogue. Like, what is he? Maybe that's the title of the video. Like, what is Manu Ginobili? And of course, Manu Ginobili's response to that was, I am Manu. That is <laughs> that is what I am. Uh, supposedly. that's. I think Pop told that story <laughs> at the Hall of Fame speech this year when he was inducted over the summer. But there was this sort of very real thing that you can see where in his first, let's say, two seasons or so in San Antonio... They wanted to run this traditional offense through Tim Duncan in the post. You could think of it as an inside-out offense. It was similar to some degree to Olajuwon and the Rockets. Um, I do give Popovich a lot of credit for being ahead of his time on so many things when you go back and watch these games. So many things are super impressive. One of them being the use of 3 and D players and three-point shooters. So when you throw it into Duncan in the post and you swing it around the perimeter, it's exactly what you saw in that Dirk Nowitzki video eight years later. You're getting a three out of the open double, you know, out of the open shot from the double team instead of a two. Okay, what's Manu Ginobili doing when he's 25 years old on those plays? He's got a pass to Duncan, properly clear on the cut and go stand in the corner. Um, would you want Kobe Bryant to do that? <laughs> would you want Paul Pierce to do that? Would you want Steve Nash to do that? Like th- th- you're taking away the weapons that make this guy so skilled on the battlefield. You're like, I will take your sword and your arrow and everything. You just run out there and fist fight because that's, that's how you're supposed to do it. So that's a whole nother thing where it's, it's like, Everything we're talking about, and maybe we should make a list as, as we wrap up here, there's all these things that we have blind spots to or that are very difficult to traditionally measure. And then laying on top of that is the coaching and the application of the coaching and the lineups the coach puts out there and the schemes that he runs and the decisions and the concepts and sets that he puts into the team on offense and defense. And we had a whole episode I th- did we have an episode where we talked about coaches? Was this something I made up? Is that a thing we did? I remember at one point making a comment about how impossible it is to evaluate coaches, but I yes. don't remember talking about it. Okay, this sounds this sounds familiar, Cody. For a second there, I was like, yeah. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I think we did, yeah. Okay, I think we did that. And it, it is impossible just to fully evaluate and be like such and such coaches, like number one, number two, number three. But I think like you just said, the maximization of what you have on the court is probably key. And depending on who's the court, is the coach and the team able to adjust uh, – adjust in a way that's going to help everyone that's actually on the court at that time do the best that they can, right? It's not necessarily like you give Max Struess the ball and he's just going to run a bunch of high pick and rolls and everything's going to work, right? Like it's not just inflating somebody's points. I'm saying that Max Struess, it's not just about giving somebody the ball. It's about putting somebody in the spaces, in the places that's going to allow them to be as successful for themselves and for the team. I think defensively on the, the other side of the court here, I think talking about the Spurs here is what also really interests me because Tony Parker, Ben, 
as far as I'm concerned, Tony Parker is not a great defensive player. He's mm-hmm. just not, right? Yep. He's not a high steals guy. He's a very small player. He's not going to help with backline defense and stuff like that. He's not would, a very big guy. Would you say he's a bad defender? This is my. This is where I'm getting to, Ben. This okay. is the buildup, okay? okay? Because Tony Parker existed on some of the greatest defensive lineups ever under Popovich. And when I see Parker and I see and I compare him to other guards that I would consider to be like incredible defensive players, Parker basically has none of those signals, right? And so then I ask myself, I'm like, could Popovich theoretically take like most like neutral to bad defenders and make them functional like Tony Parker is? Or is there something about Tony Parker that I'm missing that Popovich was able to get out of him? And I think that's the coaching aspect that I'm really interested in is like man I would love to see the counterfactual of Tony Parker and his prime somewhere else to see if he's able to be a functional defensive player or if that's something that was a a synergy between coach and player there or or I think it's a combination of the coaching with the player and then the system around the player because so if you're a small guard you just need to do your job well enough to let the bigger players and the rim protectors on the court around you, you know, Tim Duncan, Bruce Bowen, Ginobili, Robert Ori, whoever else was out there, Nazi Muhammad, Rosho Nesterovich. I'm now I'm just naming old Spurs for, for no reason, but you see what I'm getting at David Robinson. Um, you know, you just need to, you just need to do your job well enough and you don't have a massive sort of leak defensively as the point guard. I think that's all you, you have to do. I think we saw something similar with Ray Allen in Boston, where maybe you get some different coaching, maybe your team, you know, who knows whether it's from, um, you know, the coaching staff itself or the players you're working with and things like that. Bill Russell's biography talks about defending pick and roll with Casey Jones and just working on it as as a pair in the offseason and just like talking about how they're going to do it. So I think all that stuff is probably present in your development and it's probably a combination. Um can I try to make a list of sort of these areas we've talked about? Can I summarize or do you have more to get to? I was going to say, we, we're listing things. Are we going to like rank? No, no, no. I'm just summar- I'm summarizing everything we've, we've covered a lot of ground, I feel like here today. Yeah. I feel like or we maybe, did, maybe not. Also, maybe we didn't. Maybe we didn't cover any ground. Maybe, maybe no one's listening anymore. <laughs> there's so much more I could cover. Like, man, I wanted to get into, to, yeah, let's, let's save that for No, what time. are you, hold on. What are you, what were you going to say? So what I was I think I texted you about this recently, but I'm having this thing with uh, with centers racking up assists with oh dribble the dribble handoffs yeah yeah it's kind of it's been it's been sticking in my craw and it's been grinding my gears like when I'm going and I'm watching a bunch of guys playing and I'm like oh so and so averaged like three assists a game and like two of those assists are like the point guard runs around them and they hand the ball and they go down and make a pull up fifteen footer. I'm like, I don't know. I feel like this is ballooning assists in, in some kind of a way. So I almost think that the biggest siren song for me to go and answer my own question is center assists, right? Because <laughs> there's like there's dif- there's different tiers of it. And maybe that's a whole other conversation to have. But I think there's different tiers of how valuable a big man can be as as a as a DHO hub. And I think all of these guys kind of get inflated a little bit because you're like, oh, I'm going to hand you the ball and you're going to run in and shoot from 16 feet away. Yeah, that's a very modern thing, though. I think that's that's very specific to where the league has gone recently with with space and dribble handoff actions. Um, so if I had to make a list, let's start with what Cody just said. I think the quality of your passes or your shot creation, and we saw this in the Steve Nash episode, we know it's not all created the same. So all assists aren't the same, but even sort of estimating 
how often you open up a shot for a teammate by pulling a second defender out of place, which was the whole point behind the box creation stat that we have for Patreon subscribers, uh, patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball up on thinkingbasketball.net. They're not all created exactly the same. Layups are different than threes. And another subtle thing is like, you watch some of these players like Nash, the passes are put in incredible positions for the players to finish. And then you watch someone like Dirk sometimes and like, oh, the pass is slower and higher. So the defender is going to be two feet closer to the shooter on the closeout. That stuff is, that can just totally get lost in the wash for a lot of people. Um, I think gravity is another big one, although we finally have become conceptually aware of it. It's not necessarily easy to measure, but we've become conceptually aware of it. And you, we've talked about that with Dirk and Reggie Miller and Anthony Davis running down the lane and things like that. Another small one we had was dictating the matchups. I think that's something that has a downstream effect on all your teammates that when you turn on the film, if you don't realize it, it's very, very hard to spot. And we don't, again, forget stats for it. We like don't have a uh, jargon or nomenclature that's like, yeah, that guy, that's a guy that you put him out there and uh, he's going to get every other game. He's going to get one of his guys on, an, on a weaker defender or whatever, whatever you would describe this as. Uh, spacing is another one we talked about. Movement, I think in general, is kind of in that movement and cutting is in that plane. And we have some synergy stats on this now that I think help, but it's hard to really differentiate probably between like a good and a great cutter, but I think we're there. I think gravity and movement we're getting we're getting more um, aware of or, or keen keen hip to what what keen what is it nineteen forty did I what, keen what? to yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> feels like a very old word um, getting hip to I what would like. What's even the phrase of hip to? Like, I'm getting hip to it. Like, I'm getting hip to hip to it, and I'm going to, like, hip check it. Like, that's the only thing I can think. Uh, I don't know what's happening right now. Um, we talked about screening. I think screening is a subtle one that, that depending on how you do it, especially, like, when you see rookies or young players that don't always understand the intricacies of how to set that up, either with the ball or without the ball. Um, speed of the decision-making. The decision-making that entire matrix that we talked about, speed of decision-making, I've talked about sort of viscosity, the opposite, like stopping the ball, slowing the ball down. I mean, this gets back to your point about Ginobili. Not only, not only is his move going in the opposite direction from the move you took away, but he's one of these original like 0.5 players. Like when I think about his entire structure, he's off ball, the ball hits him. He's doing something right away. He's going right into it with a very, very quick attack. That's different than being slow. Um, where you move around and what you do with your body, that's part of decision-making. And then we talked about coaching. And probably the last category here, Cody, would be defense. And just like all the things you laid out defensively, communicating, uh, not fouling, positioning yourself to deter a shot. I mean, that would that would probably be my list if I could summarize everything we talked about today. Did I miss anything? I feel like to make a musical reference here, I feel like you want a player that's like more trained in, in jazz, right? Somebody that can kind of go with the flow, 
kind of, you know, improvise with what's going on in the court as opposed to like a big symphony where it's like, oh, I have to do this one thing at this exact moment or else it falls apart. That's not how basketball is, right? You mm. want a fish concert up there. You want you want to just be able to jam out for, for a certain number of time and hope that hope that everyone else is on the same page as you. So so you're saying like the the Grateful Dead are very good at basketball. Yes, Yonder Mountain String Band. Like these are all are bands that you could just toss up there, and and they're gonna teach you what you need to know from ba- about basketball. This is the widest moment in the history of the show. Uh, to 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 support this show, check out patreon.com slash the we lost Cody. I ejected him from his chair. Patreon.com slash thinking basketball. That's where you can get all the all the stats we talked about here today. The sta- the stats that hopefully aren't aren't blind to some of these things. Um, what else do we oh we have our live QA coming up. That's always a that's always a fun one. Uh, Hope hope you enjoyed this episode, and uh, th- as always, what do I say at the end of this? As always, I hope you're having uh, a great day. Mm-hmm.